This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We, uh, and when I say we, I say the stem cell program. For those who don't know me, uh, Alison Watry, together with Silva Evans, we are both co-directors of the UCCD stem cell program. And we always think about uh, how to improve the communication, uh, the networking. And uh, we thought about uh, teaming up with Evan, who has been running this uh, seminar series for a long time. I remember when I was a postdoc here going to, to, to those talks and really taking advantage of uh, the quality of speakers, uh, the openness of uh, the conversations and, and really, uh, I think, adds to, to my background on a stem cell biologist. So um, we now have the opportunity to um, uh, invite people from, from outside, really provoke more cross-fertilization uh, in our community. And uh, Steve Goldman was uh, one of the, uh, the top uh, people who people were excited uh, to bring here, so we invited. I'm glad he accepted and uh, his work, um, it's very interesting because it's quite broad. I think I start to pay attention to his work uh, when I was doing adult neurogenesis, a little bit of um, uh, 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 how, I mean, songboards actually create new neurons in, in, in the hippocampus. Uh, but then, I mean, it, it, he started to become more a, a glial person and, and really use uh, gliogenesis as a model to study um, normal functions of, of glial cells, neurodifferentiation, uh, the connections with brain cancer tumors, as well as uh, how to use that as a transplantation or, or a perspective for therapeutic use in, in, in diseases that affect um, uh, oligodendrocytes and glia in general. I'm particularly very excited that this can uh, extrapolate in neurodegeneration. It's going to neuropsychiatry disorders as well. So I think this is uh, what we're going to be hearing from now. So thank you so much, Steve, for coming. And uh, please welcome Steve Goldman. As Allison mentioned, you know, I started working on neurogenesis a long time ago when we were looking at um, actually uh, uh, neuronal production in adult canaries. It was something that uh, Fernando wrote about, and I found at Rockefeller a long time ago. And um, uh, you know, that led to studies and ascending species, if you will, um, until the point where we're looking at the adult human brain and the different types of stem and progenitor cells that were within it. And this is you know, some, some years back, maybe 15 years ago, we were sorting uh, hippocampal neuroprogenitors and a ventricular zone and, and basically finding you know, they're there in the adult human, but, but uh, you know, they're relatively, relatively scarce. In the meantime, we, we were just uh, overwhelmed by the numbers of glial progenitor cells that, that we were pulling out. Uh, using these extraction methods that, that were based on you know, phenotype-specific uh, transcriptional elements. And at a certain point, I thought, well, gee whiz, why, why am I working on, on neurogenesis, which may or may not, and that, as many of you know, is still controversial, may or may not be significant in, in adult humans, um, when what was really clear was that there were so many glial progenitors uh, that, uh, that this had to be significant. My clinical training is a neuro-oncologist, and so you know, this is the cell type of origin for gliomas, and I had a, you know, an intense interest in that as well. And so, so putting all that together, the lab uh, started to move more and more towards studies of gliogenesis, and, and, um, and, and as I'll go through 
today, uh, the, all the different implications of essentially new findings in gliobiology as they appertain to a broad variety of, of neurologic diseases. And so the, uh, the disease list that one would normally associate with gliopathology is already significant, you know, even before we start to think in terms of newer opportunities. Um, and, and basically, you know, that comes down to the, the myelin disorders. There are um, lots and lots of pediatric disorders of myelin, genetic uh, and pediatric leukodystrophies, everything from the congenital hypomyelinations to the storage disorders that result in, in, in myelin destruction to the failure of, of, of glial progenitor maturation and expansion that occurs in cerebral palsy. All of these end up with hypomyelination or demyelination in kids, which can be variably either severely disabling or fatal. And in the adults, and you know, and every one of us here will, uh, pres presuming that we live long enough, well, not necessarily become demented, but certainly have age-related white matter loss, which, which is the, the one of the major causes of sub subcortical dementia. You know, we, th we think about Alzheimer's being such an important clinical target, but almost half of adult dementias are, are actually based on white matter disease as opposed to uh, straight uh, cortical dementias. And then, um, uh, you know, the, the, the causes uh, and the comorbidities with age-related white matter loss, diabetic, hypertensive, uh, leukoencephalopathies, you know, we're seeing more and more and more of this diabetic leukoencephalopathies now as people live longer and diabetes population becomes so much greater. It's, um, it's really turning out to be a significant cause of adult white matter loss and then secondarily neurologic dysfunction, including dementia. But one, one disease that we all always think about is a classic myelin disease that, that uh, is, of course, the focus of, of uh, quite a bit of therapeutic effort is multiple sclerosis and as and many variants like trans versus myelitis or optic neuritis, so, and, and MS we're going to talk about in, in, in some detail. Um, so it was an, with an eye towards potentially uh, using glial progenitor cells uh, as a treatment for multiple sclerosis, uh, That uh, and, and, and I'm going to go into a little detail in terms of in, in what settings uh, that uh, it might be potentially used as treatment. Uh, but um, it was with that general eye towards uh, establishing a remyelinating therapy for uh, for the adult-acquired dysmyelination of MS that, that we started to take the purified glial progenitor cells that we were obtaining from, from tissues and uh, we were transplanting them uh, to into uh, various animal models of, of demyelination to see whether or not the cells were capable of, of remyelinating uh, demyelinated axons. So, so I'll, I'll just parenthetically at this point say that uh, glial progenitors you know, there's a lot of terminology in, in the field that can be confusing. So glial progenitors uh, can give rise to astrocytes or oligodendrocytes, the two macroglial phenotypes of the brain. This has nothing to do with microglial cells, which are the innate immune cells of the brain. So oligodendrocytes and astrocytes, in, uh, in rodents and experimental models, uh, there, there's debate in terms of the lineages, um, how restricted they are at different points during ontogeny. But what is clear in, in humans, though, is that the glial progenitor is by potential to generate either astrocytes or oligodendrocytes up until its very last division, and that is both in gray matter and white matter. It's about 5% of the cells in our brains are resident glial progenitors, and they are every bit as abundant and actually a little bit more so in gray matter than white matter. When we first isolated these cells and described them, we called them white matter 
progenitors and then realize, hey, there's just as many in, in the gray matter. And they uh, are actually a, a very interesting phenotype. They are not sitting there just to make new astrocytes and oligodendrocytes. They, they have functions of their own, which we'll get into. But in any event, we originally were calling them oligodendrocyte progenitor cells, which was the standard in the field at the time until we realized that they were every bit as competent to make astrocytes. Now we just call them glial progenitors. So early in the game, we realized that, okay, here, here was a cell type that if when we extract it from the human brain and and then uh, inject it, uh, we, we can use it as a cellular vector for remyelination. Um, but originally, we were doing that from adult tissues, surgical resections. So then we thought, okay, this might be a feasible strategy to work up uh, therapeutically, and so we started using f- fetal tissues in the second trimester, late second trimester, uh, abortus. And th- these are medically necessary abortions in the setting of premature rupture of the membranes. Um, and so, so uh, the, the element of controversy that, that surrounds fetal tissue use did, did not so much appertain to these. But in any event, uh, we developed the methods for extracting different progenitor populations from them, but especially the, the glial progenitor that was biased towards oligodendrocyte fate. And that was by selecting on a marker called A2B5 that recognizes a set of uh, glial progenitor-specific gangliosides, and at the same time depleting the population of any neuroblasts using another marker, polycyolated NCAM. So that gave us a good cellular vector, and then we developed, without going into too much detail, an injection strategy for, for getting into the major white matter tracts of the mouse brain. And then when we injected the cells, we see this kind of pattern if we wait long enough. We, we went into the shiver mouse uh, initially. In fact, this was uh, based on some early work of, uh, of Evans many years back, uh, where he was using shiver and, uh, as a model for looking at the myelination competence of, um, uh, of injected cells. We realized, uh, you know, Evan had the right idea. This is a really good model to go into. And so we um, uh, went in with uh, this cell population and found that uh, very quickly the cells were capable of, of migrating and dispersing throughout the, uh, the brain. Now, shiver normally dies at uh, about 19, 20 weeks. The, these are mice that have an early stop codon on the first exon, the myelin basic protein gene, so they, they don't myelinate as, they, as the animals. Uh, they're born, they look normal, but as, they're, as they get larger, as they get bigger, axons become longer. Now they're not myelinated. There's more and more conduction failure. There's no, uh, no capability of saltatory conduction in the absence of myelin. And then the animals become more and more symptomatic. They get uh, ataxic. They start to have a tremor. This is why they're called shiver. They become weak in the hind limbs, the forelimbs. They go blind. They die. And, and that, that occurs like clockwork by 19, 20 weeks. And this already gives you an idea what's going on. This one we killed at nine months. And basically these animals are rescued. Every dot here is a human cell, though. And, and that's something we'll get back to. Uh, this is a single 14-micron section, so it gives you an idea of, of just how extensive the um, colonization of the brains are by the human cells. And they go ahead and myelinate, but this is all human myelin now, and that rescues the animals, and they go on to normal two-year lifespans with actually what's most remarkable for a neurologist, a complete resolution of their neurologic symptoms. It takes a while, and so they do look sick, and they get worse and worse, but then they start to turn the corner slowly get better until they are back to normal neurologically. Uh, it, but it is a slow process, and so this, these are matched animals looking at the midline of the corpus callosum, the major white matter tract of the brain, and so at three, five, nine months of age, you can see the red uh, axons, these are the mouse axons, becoming slowly myelinated by the, the green human myelin from the blue 
human oligodendrocyte the progenitors that have now become oligodendrocytes. And, and it really is out to nine months before it's complete myelination of the brains of these animals. So, so we wanted to be able to speed that up if we were going to be able to use this clinically. And so we, we uh, defined a number of markers that were expressed by the cells at different points in, in their development and uh, identified uh, CD140, which is a epitope of the PDGF-alpha receptor that comes on when the cells are still bipotential, but at that point relatively late in the game in terms of the, of the number of population doublings they have to go through before they commit to, uh, uh, to terminal phenotypic differentiation. And so the, even though they're not biased one way or the other, they are only a few divisions away from becoming an oligodendrocyte or an astrocyte if, if, if they are put uh, back at in vivo. And so uh, basically it's a way of speeding the process up. And when we sort it on the basis of the CD140 epitope, we see within three months we can get at least 50% of the, of the axons myelinated uh, by these CD140 sorted uh, human gliopogenitors. And so it's a way of speeding the process up. And that gives us also a means of um, uh, identifying these cells in, uh, in, in culture and knowing when we can uh, use them for transplant purposes uh, most effectively. And so it was in that setting, uh, we were looking at the RNA expression profiles of these cells during development and realized that we were getting enough information to be able to predict what ligands to be adding to these sequentially expressed receptors that the cells were expressing at various points in, in their ontogeny. And with that information, we expected that we'd be able to essentially produce the phenotype from pluripotent stem cells. And so we first did that with embryonic stem cells and with iPS cells and then essentially um, uh, optimized the technique over a couple of years. As we learned more and more about the native uh, developmental biology of the cells, we were able to apply that back to, uh, to more and more refined production strategies. And so we ended up with this protocol that uh, will uh, allows us to go from ES or IPS cell to gliopogenitor cells uh, it, with, with very high fidelity, it, it's uh, based basically by the time we're out here, e- easily 90% of the cells are typically gliopogenitors as defined by CD140 or A2B5. Uh, the 10% that are not are typically fibrous astrocytes, which actually seem to actually help uh, the uh, graft success. So that's the good news. It's, it's an extremely high fidelity approach for making a given def- defined phenotype from a pluripotent stem cell. Uh, with higher efficiency than I think any other phenotype that's been described. That's the good news. The bad news is that it takes a really long time. So this is recapitulating human development, of course, and the oligodendrocyte is the last phenotype generated in the human body. And, and you know, we, we don't even start to generate gliopogenitors until 16, 18 weeks of gestation. Um, it's not till about 28 weeks that, that uh, it's really uh, uh, an ex- a rapidly expanding pool. And the cells don't really start to myelinate in the brain in, until about that point. Um, the myelination is, is only uh, 90% complete in, in humans at a couple of years of age postnatally. And, of course, it goes on right through adolescence. And so these are very, very slowly maturing cells. So it takes about uh, 140 days minimally. Uh, but, in fact, we typically go out beyond 200 days uh, in vitro before we have cells that uh, are transplantable. But when we do transplant them, we get uh, myelination uh, from the ES-derived, or IPS in this case, gliopogenitors, uh, just, as, uh, just as effectively, in fact, in some ways more so than from fetal tissue. The cells will give rise to oligodendrocytes or astrocytes. These are adjacent sections. These are fibrous astrocytes that are essentially forming the, the infrastructure, if you will, for 
the glial progenitors that then line up along them and then go ahead and myelinate. And so you get this essentially longitudinal organization of the fibrous astrocytes in the corpus callosum with the oligodendrocytes on top of them and, and forming the myelin. Uh, the myelin uh, uh, sheaths that, that then, of course, are surrounding the axons that are going through the same area. And so, uh, effectively, this is the the humanization of the white matter. The, the myelin is generated is entirely normal without going through all the individual details here. This is what human myelin normally looks like in all of its features, and, and it's entirely normal in terms of conduction velocities and, and functional uh, acquisition of functional speed as well. So, we end up with uh, the ability to make um, it's essentially chimeric brains where the white matter itself is essentially humanized by uh, implanted human progenitors. And we can do that not just from tissue, not just from embryonic stem cells, but from IPS, which also gives us the ability to do this on a patient-specific basis. And uh, we've done a number of things with, with this as a model. First and foremost, still looking at uh, effectively the biology of myelination and demyelination, we, we uh, did this experiment. We wanted to see whether we could look at the uh, effectively the uh, transcriptional events that accompany remyelination by human progenitors. This is a, a significant topic in in, th- in therapeutic development for in myelin disorders. Is you know, what, if you have an area that demyelinates and now remyelinates, patients with MS, for example, will typically undergo a demyelinating episode in, in response to an immune activation and then uh, you know, following a, a T-cell response and, and local demyelination, um, new glial progenitors will, will come in, divide, make, make new oligodendrocytes and remyelinate that, that focus. And that happens a couple of times, and at a certain point that process fails, and that's what then leads to chronic progressive MS after that process of uh, progenitor-induced remyelination starts to essentially exhaust. And so we, we wanted to see what um, uh, what the... Uh, what transcriptional architecture was being established by these cells, what genes they were expressing, and in what order and during the process of remyelination, essentially from oligodendrocytic differentiation followed by myelinogenesis by, by human cells in vivo. Folks, folks had done this for years, and animal models, the information that had come out, it turned out not to translate very well, well to humans. We thought, well, gee whiz, let, let's do this with human cells in vivo. And so we, we established the, these chimeric animals, and then they gave them a cuprosome, which is a demyelinating toxin. We've looked at all sorts of demyelinating models, but this is the one that I think best replicates what, what's going on, in, at least in the pathology of, of human demyelination during the progression to, to, uh, to progressive uh, multiple sclerosis. And then um, uh, we're able to take these cuprosome demyelinated brains, and then allow them time to remyelinate from the endogenous, now human, progenitor population. And one thing to remember here, not to remember, I haven't mentioned it before, is that um, uh, oligodendrocytes are killed by cuprosome. Glial progenitors are not. So we've, we've set up these chimeras. The myelin is there. The, uh, the human cells are there. The progenitors are still there. They're demyelinated. Now the progenitors are activated, but they're human progenitors. They go ahead and remyelinate these axons that had been previously myelinated and now demyelinated. So it's, a, it's different conceptually from axons that had never been, never seen myelin before in their lives, like in the shiver. In this case, these axons were myelinated by the initial graft, and now they're remyelinating, and we're pulling these cells back out of the brains. And when we do that, 
Uh, first of all, when we take take the uh, the white matter of these demyelinated now remyelinating. Uh, uh, regions and then uh, run single cell on them. We we see that we get you know very very discrete clusters of uh, of, of still glial progenitors, human, and this uh, these markers in KX22 is upstream to SOX10, but they're very typical typical of of, uh, of glial progenitor ontogeny and phenotype. And then we look at the at the uh, essentially the whole population of glial progenitors that we're taking back out of these brains during the period where they are remyelinating. And that allows us to then look at, of course, the differential expression uh, of, of genes by these cells as they are undergoing remyelination. And, and we can break, the, after network analysis, break that out into just a couple major categories. And, and what's interesting is that you know, some were just as expected. Uh, so, for example, all these genes fall into the categories of uh, thyroid uh, hormone-dependent, retinoid receptor-dependent signaling, uh, lipid transport. And, and these are the traditional targets, if you will, for uh, inducing remyelination uh, therapeutically. In, from resident glial progenitor populations. And, and that is the trick, right? The, what we're trying to do is, is identify the, the targets for turning on endogenous progenitors to make them, uh, at our command, induce new oligodendrocytes and, and remyelinate. We're trying to replicate the process that it's occurring in these animals. Uh, but at the same time, we see other modules pop up that were really not well understood. And so... We're really p- picking up new targets. Uh, the number of members of the uh, TGF beta signaling pathway operating through SMAD4 that are that are represented here, that uh, turn out to be actually very viable targets, and also some of uh, uh, some downstream targets of TCF uh, signaling, TCF7 like two signaling actually turned out to be quite upstream in terms of the potential induction of, of oligodendrocyte fate from glial progenitors. And uh, just looking again at the functional classifications, just note down here, one of the functional categories that comes up looking at, at this module is schizophrenia, and that's something we're going to get back to, that there's some uh, molecular homology, if you will, between an activated glial progenitor and, and some of the genes that are differentially expressed in schizophrenia, and we'll see that becomes an important point. Um, but th- then, still staying on the on the on the, if you will, therapeutic theme of uh, how do we use these you know, these models to establish how best to have a remyelinating vector? Um, we, we went uh, and took the Cuprosome model a bit further and uh, took normal animals, okay? absolutely normal, not shiver, not xenografted, not uh, not chimeric. And let, let them grow up at a certain point, then gave them a long-term cuprazone challenge. Typically, we, we give cuprazone uh, for four to six weeks. In, in this case, for 20 weeks. And what happens is that the mice uh, are basically demyelinating. Their own glial progenitors are starting to mobilize to make new myelin. But as soon as they start to become oligodendrocytes, they're killed by the cuprazone. And that just goes on and on and on. So basically, the, the mouse endogenous progenitors... Are, are maintained in a, a process of constant mobilization, and then their progeny are constantly killed. And after uh, after basically several months of this, the, the progenitor population starts to become severely depleted. And these animals, if you don't do anything else, will, will die. But what we do is we transplant the human progenitors at various points in time during that uh, demyelinating or right after that process of sustained demyelination. And the idea being to see whether in axons that had been normally myelinated and are now demyelinated in adulthood, if we transplant in human progenitors at de novo, will they be capable of rescuing the animal and, and of 
and, and of course, of remyelinating. And then we sacrificed at various points in time. And so it's a variation on the theme of the experiment before, but now in a much more clinically relevant setting. These are not neonatal chimeras. These are just normal mice that, that have the misfortune to see cuprazone and, de- and have their brains demyelinated. So when we, we transplant the, the cells, again, this is the CD140-defined population, the, they migrate uh, abundantly through adult brain, and this is an important point. So we are capturing the cells specifically at a point where they would normally be migrating uh, in, in uh, development. And so what we're trying to do is capture the cells at a developmental stage that corresponds to that where they are typically undergoing migration from the medial ganglionic eminence of the developing brain out, out, out to the cortex and subcortical structures where they will then integrate as gliopogenitor cells. Well, that extraction of the cells based on CD140 allows that. And so these cells, they don't know they're in an adult brain, right? So they're not yet expressing the repulsive receptors that will uh, essentially represent stop signals. Instead, they uh, are, are behaving as they would in early ontogeny, migrating through the, t- the tissue. And it's not to anthropomorphize it too much, but, but not recognizing that they're in adult tissue. And they go ahead and then remyelinate the, this de- Cooper's own demyelinated brain uh, with, with absolutely normal myelin. Here's a, just, just one nice example of a human leoprogenitor that, that has remyelinated uh, its, its local surround. Now, to take this uh, a little further therapeutically, one needs to be able to get the cells uh, into and around larger brains. Even though the cells were, were clearly migratory, we wanted to know whether they would, uh, whether that process would continue, whether they would migrate in larger and larger brains effectively. Uh, we, we first went to squirrel monkeys and found, that in fact, they were uh, both migratory and able to remyelinate, focally demyelinated lesions. But we also realized that squirrel monkey brains are actually quite small. And so we, we went to aged rats, which, which have actually larger brains than squirrel monkeys. And for any of you ex, either from Philadelphia or New York, especially ex-New Yorkers, uh, you know, the, the rats in the subway system can get the size of raccoons. And actually, they're, they're, they continue growing through, through life, and, uh, and the brains do too. And so it actually gives us a larger distance to, to work with. Anyway, this is uh, Joanna Osorio's uh, work, a pediatric neurologist in the lab who's interested in using this as a treatment for cerebral palsy. In her case, she she injected aged rats four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and four months after a single injection. This is one single injection in the corpus callosum of the gliopogenitors. You can see the, the broad dispersal of the donor cells and, of course, the donor cell progeny. There's a lot of expansion that's continuing out to you know, 32 weeks. Basically, by the time you get to just over a half a year, it's, it's asymptotic, and the brain is um, fully infiltrated with, with the human gliopogenitors, and they are largely replacing the endogenous mouse, which, which we'll get to. Now, the, the average migration of these cells is uh, just over a centimeter, uh, but they go up and down the entire neuraxis, and so down to the conus, uh, the cordia equina, the entire length of the of the spinal cord from a single brain injection. It just takes time, and so the maximum distance traversed just in the rat is, is about eight centimeters, and so we look at it as, as quite a migratory phenotype. Um, we're doing peak studies now as per the FDA, but, but uh, uh, you know, we expect that these cells will be every bit as migratory in all, all species. Um, the, the limitations have to do more with the number of population doublings they're capable of than, than the actual migratory competence. So to be able to use these cells clinically, one needs to um, put them in uh, under, or raise them under, I should say, uh, good manufacturing practice uh, compliance, which is GMP 
compliance. And um, uh, to do that, we picked up a grant from New York State and built a GMP facility at Rochester and then, then transitioned these, this technique that, that we developed for making the cells to the GMP environment, which uh, you know, is one sentence, but it took us a couple of years. There, there is a bit involved in, in doing that in terms of having thing, everything you know, feeder-free and xenogen-free and well, uh, you know, completely defined reagents, et cetera. But in any event, it works fine. And so this is the technique that uh, we submitted to the FDA last year. The, 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 the GMP-produced uh, cells that uh, are, are generated through this approach will myelinate uh, they shiver a brain just as well as anything else we've ever seen, and this is just the remyelination of of a of a shiver using um, embryonic stem cell derived gliopogenitors that are under GMP. And this is just a high power of the same, giving you an idea of ju- just how dense the remyelination uh, is using the GMP product. And so, so this, this is the kind of information we, we needed to be able to, to go to the FDA to, to propose this as a clinical trial for progressive MS. Progress- now, the progressive phase of multiple sclerosis is an inter- interesting one. You know, a lot of folks will talk about using cell therapeutics for multiple sclerosis, but at, at, uh, there are two phases of MS, and so it's, you have to be very um, careful about which phase one is Discussing the the uh, normal early phases of MS, um, or the norm, normally encountered, I should say. There's nothing normal about the disease process, uh, but but in uh, relapsing remitting MS, the early phases of it, there, there's persistent um, uh, episodes and recurrent episodes of demyelination, autoimmune demyelination, but they resolve, and then slowly over time. Patients will become worse and worse as they have more and more remyelination failure after single demyelinating events. But then at a certain point, what we typically see is that most patients with MS will stop having recurrences like that. Okay? The, 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 the autoreactive T-cell clones probably have finite lifespans in the human. But then the patients will, uh, um, and we call that burned-out MS for whatever it's worth for, for um, in terms of just the clinical lingo. That, that's the, it's, it's, a, it's a slang way of saying that, it, that a, an MS patient has transitioned out of the relapsing remitting phase. But that doesn't mean that their disease has stopped. In fact, that's when it typically gets worse, and that's when they transition to the chronic progressive phase. By that point, a patient has lost a lot of myelin all throughout the brain. And axons require myelin. Axons require oligodendrocyte contact for survival. And so what happens is that slowly but surely, axons start to die, and the neurons are lost, and, and uh, both striatal and cortical atrophy starts to begin. And patients, that's when patients will go from being functional to dysfunctional, to, from being able to take care of daily needs to being wheelchair-bound and worse. And so it's a significant phase of the disease, and in fact, it's the least treatable. And there are lots of drugs now, immune modulators, that are quite effective in terms of of cutting down the number of relapses, of suppressing the severity of relapsing remitting MS. But by the time somebody ultimately transitions to progressive, then there's, we, we don't have any ther- therapies for that. And so the, the idea here is to use the gliopogenitors to transplant them directly into the brain and uh, hope for two things. The first is that the cells disperse and engage resonant axons the same way they do in the experimental models. And the, the idea there would be to preserve those axons that are threatened. These are axons that have been demyelinated, but they're still there, but they're going to die if they don't have achieve oligodendrocyte contact and, and enwrapment. And then, of course, the, uh, the other purpose is to uh, functionally remyelinate them and to restore conduction. And, but these are two independent endpoints. 
and uh, one one resulting potentially in the stabilization of disease, the other in, in actually the restoration of functions that have been lost. Uh, but these are two independent functions that we're hoping to see both, of course, play out. Um, and, and so this trial, we went to uh, the pre-IND, originally actually with fetal tissue a couple of years back, and then realized that for scaling this up and for doing all the work that was going to re- be required in, in um in a clinical trial, we might as well just go straight to the uh, embryonic stem cell derived. And so we went back to the FDA with, with a, another pre-IND almost a year ago. And um, uh, now basically are just, just going through the, some of the safety talks. Uh, safety toxicology assessments have to be done at, a, at an independent CRO to make sure that the cells aren't tumorigenic and this kind of thing. Uh, but assuming that that uh, uh, comes back well, then I, I would expect that we'd be in the patients about a year and a half from now, given all the different timelines involved. So meantime, uh, as this very therapeutic program was, was evolving, uh, you know, everybody involved doing it started to get more and more interested just in, in the nature and, and the implications of this degree of chimerization. I mean, when you look at so many human cells, you know, you have to ask yourself, where are the mouse cells? And, and the answer is they're gone. Uh, so what, what's happening is that slowly but surely, the human cells are replacing the mouse uh, within the glial populations. And so here we're looking at glial progenitors, human in green, mouse in red, NG2 is a marker of chondroitin sulfate proteoglycan type 4, which is expressed by all glial progenitors. It's, um, they're human and mouse-specific epitopes. So that's why we could stain for the same antigen looking for, for the two different uh, species derivations. And th- this is added about seven months or so, where, where the, this, the human Human cells were initially put in down here uh, in the subventricular region ju- just below the corpus callosum neonatally, and now, months later, they've migrated out. The, the mouse cells are basically sequestered out to the cortical surface. This is what it looks like in, in essentially snapshots at four months, eight months, 12 months ventricular zone surface where the cells are first put in, uh, out to the peel surface, these cortical strips, you see that there's an initial period of several months where the cells that have been transplanted are, are expanding within the presumptive white matter. The mouse cells are still all there in the cortex, but by the time you go out to eight months, those mouse cells have, have really been uh, mostly killed, okay? and so they, they actually die in situ as the human cells are migrating out. Some of them actually uh, do, themselves do migrate out dorsally, but by the time you're out of 12 months, there were no mouse glial progenitors left, and it's not just in these strips, in the whole brain. And so the, the, the human cells, as they are colonizing, or replacing the mouse, so the, the human cells have their own, uh, you know, their own lives. Uh, the, you know, we think of glial progenitors often, at least those of us working with them, as these little bipolar cells in vitro. And in fact, they're extremely complex cells. They're every bit as complex in terms of uh, fiber uh, complexity as one typically thinks of their larger cousins, the astrocytes. They're, actually, the astrocytes are not their cousins. The astrocytes are their, are, their, are their daughter cells because these are the cells that give rise to oligodendrocytes and astrocytes both. But uh, th- th- this mapping here is just a neurolucida tracing on a number of, uh, of gliopogenitors in a, a, the human gliopogenitors in the chimeric brain. It gives you an idea of just, just how complex the cells are. They're, they're always uh, querying their environment. These processes are moving in many, the same way that the microglial processes has, uh, have been described as doing. Um, and they respect one another's domains. There's a domain architecture with these where the fibers don't, uh, don't overlap, uh, which, which mimics the domain architecture of astrocytes, which we'll get to, and yet the astrocyte and gliopogenitor domains don't recognize one another. So it's, it's an extraordinary degree of complexity in terms of the fiber organization of these brains. Now, over time, 
uh, one of the things that gliopogenitors do is replace astrocytes as they are lost. So oligodendrocytes are a relatively stable population in the adult brain. Uh, you know, we, we lose oligodendrocytes uh, slowly, and when we do, they they are typically replaced, um, at least in the chimeras, and we believe it's the case in human uh, humans in vivo as well, uh, by, by new oligos produced from the gliopogenitor. But, but a much more... Uh, significant source of glial turnover in the brain is that of the astrocytes. Astrocytes are always turning over. And when they uh, do so, uh, in, at least in the case of normal turnover, they are typically replaced by uh, newly newly generated astrocytes from the resident glial progenitor. But now the resident glial progenitors are all human. So the new astrocytes are being generated from the human progenitors. So astrocytes slowly but surely humanize as well. And so here we're looking just at one snapshot. It's seven months and the green cells are human astrocytes. And the white matter by this point is largely replaced the fibrous astrocyte population by human cells. And now there's a lot of astrocytic infiltration of the uh, of the cortex as well. And so the white cells are all human, but these, these cells have gotten to their destinations much later than these cells, and so they're on a different developmental program, but within the months thereafter, all of these will become astrocytes as well. And by the time you're out at a year, essentially all of the fibrous astrocytes in these brains are, are human, and most of the protoplasmics of the cortex are as well. So that has you know, significant implications that we started to really consider because uh, you know, human astrocytes are really different than those of, those of lower species. Human astrocytes are much, much larger, much more complex. Uh, they have hundreds of fibers relative to mouse. These are at the same, uh, same scale. This is a section of normal human adult cortex versus a, uh, a shot of a mouse protoplasmic astrocyte. These are all stained for gliofibrillary acidic protein the major intermediate filament of these cells. And so you see the mouse cell has a handful of processes and a, a little bit of fiber complexity. The, the humans are much larger. They have many, many more processes. And so individual astrocytes form domains. And so all of the, uh, the f fibers that are coming out of these astrocytes, except for the few end feet that go out to vascular surfaces, but most of these are, are uh, encircling and encompassing synapses. And what happens is that all the synapses within a given astrocytic domain, a given radial domain, are essentially set, being set at the same gain in terms of their firing by the glutamate and potassium uptake thresholds that are, uh, that are essentially uh, establishing what the environment is for excitability within that domain. And so the, these astrocytes are essentially coordinating information processing with, within the brain because they are largely setting the gain for, for given uh, you know, for given synaptic events with it within their encompassed domain. Um, well, the mouse is doing the same thing, but the mouse, you know, th this given domain might, might have a couple of thousand synapses within it. The human is anywhere 10 to 100,000 synapses encompassed within that domain. And so, you know, that, that, that suggested that, that uh, human astrocytes are actually uh, achieving much more information processing or at least much more involved in it than their mouse uh, analog. Um, and, and that's of interest too, because uh, you know the, evolutionarily, infraprimate mammals, uh, you know, basically have small astrocytes, not very well developed. It's only when you get to the monkeys, uh, New World monkeys, the astrocytes start to become a little more complex. Old World monkeys significantly more complex, and a big leap in terms of the pleomorphism, how many morphologic types there are, as well as how how much more complex they are when one gets to the to, to the great apes and humans. Um, now, in order to see what these cells might be doing in terms of contributing to the neural network, we then, then thought, well, let, let's look at these chimeras from the standpoint of, of, the, uh, of, of the role and the function of the human astrocytes 
in, in the mouse environment. But, but in order to ask those kinds of functional questions, we need to know the human cells are really going to stay human, if you will, in ter- terms of their organization and structure in the recipient mouse environment. Well, it turns out they do. If, if you tag them, as we did here with a, with a, a genetic tag for GFP before, um, at the progenitor stage before we transplant them, and then we look a, a year later, and the, the human astrocytes that have developed uh, have very much uh, mature human morphologies. And then we look at these uh, essentially chimeric structures, and so this is uh, an example of a hippocampus. Uh, the red cells are all human astrocytes out in the molecular layer. The green is uh, human myelin. This was done in a shiver. And when we uh, f- looked at uh, long-term potentiation in, in these animals, we found it was greatly facilitated. And so that was our first hint that information processing in these brains really, uh, really is different. And so that uh, led us to ask this question, and this is uh, l- largely Mike and Niedergaard's uh, work, my long-term collaborator and, and wife. And uh, what, what, what Mike and did in this case was um, uh, ask this very basic question, are these animals uh, smarter? And, and uh, we looked at a number of uh, behavioral t- tests over the years. Uh, after after we first uh, published this work. But but uh, this was the first um, model we used, which was take the chimera versus the normal, and then look at the auditory fear conditioning. Basically, the animals are exposed to a, uh, a shock uh, after a prior exposure to a sound. They learn to associate the, the, uh, the shock with the sound. But if it's at a relatively low, th- low uh, intensity, they may or may not notice they may or may not make that association. A smart mouse makes the association. Uh, a, a, a mouse that may, may, may not be the, the sharpest card in the, you know, in the deck may, um, uh, may not make the associations. And so we use that as, a, as essentially as a standard screen to see whether or not there's a difference in the, in the cognitive capabilities of, of the mice. Um, and when a mouse is scared, in other words, if it has made the association of, of sound to shock, and a sound comes on, uh, it, if it's made that association, it gets scared, it freezes. That's what mice do when they're afraid. They, they just freeze. You can quantify the amount of time they spend frozen after hearing a sound, and, and uh, that, that basically is a measure of their degree of anxiety and, and inferentially the degree to which they have made the, the association between the, 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 the uh, conditioned stimulus. And then we look at uh, how that plays out quantitatively, and we see that the chimeric mice uh, spend much more time frozen. Uh, all, these, all the mice in this series received one shock once after, uh, after a sound. They, they, you know, they hear the sound in their chamber. They, they get shocked right afterwards. Subsequent days, they're thrown into the same chamber. They don't get a shock. You know, they, they, this, they're simply presented with the sound. And the chimeric mice... Uh, spend much more time frozen, and then day after day, they, it's actually reinforced. The uh, the unengrafted control mice, um, they they don't make that association. They're not particularly worried about it when the, when they hear that sound. And what's interesting here is the mouse allograft controls, and so the, these are. Uh, mice that received mouse glial progenitors uh, at birth to, to, to be chimerized essentially with, with an allograft. And they, they don't make uh, any uh, uh, specific association between sound and shock either. So it's just the, the human glial chimeras that do. So, we, again, we've, this was just you know, one of our first examples. Uh, we've looked at um, novel object and place recognition, Barnes maze testing, a variety of uh, largely Pavlovian tests as well. And, and these animals uh, actually are quite superior in terms of cognitive capabilities. And so based on that, you know, we asked, okay, if, if, uh, if the human glial cell really is more evolved than 
its uh, lower species counterparts, um, then the, you know, we may be able to map diseases that are that are human specific because now we have a phenotype that, for all practical purposes, is uh, is is uh, human selective at least in terms of its degree of evolution and uh, degree of network function. And so then the question becomes: What diseases, right? What neurologic diseases are human specific? And the neuropsychiatric disorders are, of course, at the top of that list. Schizophrenia, autism, the autism spectrum disorders, uh, bipolar disease, many many of its endophenotypes. And so we, we asked first and foremost, we started with schizophrenia and, and asked, okay, you know, schizophrenia, as far as we know, as far as we can tell, is not uh, a disease of infraprimate mammals. It's, we don't uh, really have any evidence that, that there's a schizophrenic phenotype of any kind in monkeys. Some of the primatologists think that uh, at the level of the great apes, there, there may be some psychotic disorders. Um, and that pretty much maps to where human astrocytic evolution really takes off. So the question is, is schizophrenia glial disease? And th- this speaks to a larger issue because you know, we have lots of diseases in neuropsychiatry and neurodegenerative diseases, both, where, we, where you know, the operative word is neuro, and we just think of them as, as neuronal disorders, and that's largely because we've never had the tools to distinguish what was neuronal, what was glial, and you know, that just led to assumptions being made. And so this speaks to the larger issue of uh, what are the role of glia in these disorders, in neuropsychiatric and, and uh, as the case may be, degenerative disorders. Is, is there more of a, of a pathologic role for, for glia in, in the neurologic diseases? And so it, this is the experiment we did. Um, we took uh, uh, patients with juvenile-onset schizophrenia, and this was work done with uh, Paul Teaser at Case Western, Rob Findling at uh, Johns Hopkins, and, and uh, Findling, in particular, has a, uh, a uh, prospective series that he's followed for a number of years of uh, kids who were the um, children of parents with uh, very strong family histories of schizophrenia. Uh, these, these are random genetics. The, the, ki- the kids are all different genetically in, in this uh, specific series I'll show you here. Uh, but uh, what they all had in common was one side of the family with, a, uh, with high penetrant uh, schizophrenia. And... Um, uh, the kids were therefore followed prospectively since they were at risk, and many unfortunately did become quite uh, quite quite ill themselves. And uh, these these were childhood onset schizophrenics. Some of these kids as young as as eight years old, and um, all through the age of about fifteen. So we took uh, eight schizophrenics, and then roughly uh, all gender matched and roughly age matched. You you, you can't take control samples ethically on eight-year-olds, and so you know, some of the some of these uh, some of the controls were a little older, uh, but uh, uh, but but as but to the extent possible, age and gender matched, and then generated glial progenitors from them. Of course, we took skin samples, made IPS, made the glial progenitors from the from the IPS. And then looked, uh, first and foremost, at the chimeric brains, uh, just uh, structurally, and saw that uh, in control glial progenitor grafts, in in normal chimeras, and these were initially in shivers, so hypermyelinated, and then the the human cells take over and go ahead and myelinate. Now we're looking here at the cell distribution, not a myelin yet. And we see in the normals, the, the typical in these sagittal sections kind of architecture of the corpus callosum, the fimbria, the fornix over, back o, o, over the hippocampus here. The normal pattern of glial progenitor expansion 
The human cells are expanding throughout the white matter tracts and now starting to migrate at this point, about five months out, into the gray matter. Then we look over at the schizophrenia drives. It's a whole other story. Much less expansion within the white matter. The white matter is not so prominent, but, but, but earlier and more uh, significant expansion out to, out to the gray matter, to cortex and subcortex both. And so the, the, the um, uh, you know, prediction then would be, well, gee whiz, there's some, something happening at the level of migration or differentiation so that the cells aren't expanding within the white matter the way they should. If there's fewer white matter progenitors, there's going to be less myelin. Well, in fact, in the prospective study with the kids and what's really turned out to be a significant finding across the board in juvenile uh, uh, schizophrenia is that these kids are all hypomyelinated. In fact, long before they're clinically symptomatic, by MRI, they have uh, significant hypomyelination. Turns out that the uh, animals are replicating that. Uh, so here's the normal pattern of myelin now in one of these. In one of these chimeras, this was, uh, these cells were derived from a 20-year-old normal. And, and here again, the callosum, fimbria, fornix, back over the hippocampus here. We look at the schizophrenia derived, in this case from a 15-year-old. Well, first of all, it's very patchy white matter, uh, but you know, very little back here over the hippocampus, very patchy in the, in, the, in the fimbria. And then you look at the high power. This is the normal pattern of myelin. And then here's the schizophrenia derived. Um, it's very hypermyelinated. Uh, many of the cells are not going ahead and becoming oligodendrocytes. Those that are are doing so a little later with, with less myelin being produced. So we became really interested in this and thought, okay, here, here's, a, here's a myelin Defect, and actually, we start to think then about schizophrenia as a as a as a myelin disorder, which you know is not something we'd really considered before. So, so we we asked, uh, well, what's the basis for this? And so we took cells and, of course, generated gliopogenitors in vitro, and then, uh, but both uh, from schizophrenics and controls, and then pooled in this particular case, this this one we published last year, took basically um, uh, four different schizophrenic patients versus pooled controls. Uh, and this is all RNA-seq, uh, looking at differential expression analysis, and you see many genes that are down-regulated, only a few that are up-regulated, many that are down-regulated in the, in the, across the board in these schizophrenic lines. Uh, by uh, geontology, the major functional categories fall into synaptic transmission or glial differentiation. And uh, you know, with glial differentiation, of course, breaking out to myelination, oligodendrocyte differentiation, et cetera. So those are the two major categories. And then when we look at the actual genes involved, so, so first of all, the, uh, the glial differentiation genes, without going into any detail here, but, but this is a who's who of genes that are involved in, the, in normal glial differentiation, normal oligodendroglial differentiation in particular. You've got uh, lingo, olig1, olig2, down here, uh, zinc finger 488, uh, somewhere GPR, uh, GPCR17 is down. So, so all the genes that, that we think of is, uh, is canonically involved in glial differentiation uh, are down-regulated in the schizophrenics versus controls. And then, you know, with that failure of differentiation, uh, th there are many both potassium channels and, and some of the glutamate receptor subunits that are differentially down-regulated, but the real focus here is on potassium channels. Many of them are down-regulated. And that, that uh, corresponds to some of the functional uh, defects of these animals. And then when we looked at, uh, at those transcripts involved, uh, at least annotated as involved in synaptic transmission, actually quite a few were down in the schizophrenic, including genes like uh, norexin, which is you know, one of the canonical genes that's associated with, uh, with schizophrenia. It's one of the few genes that, that is, is monogenically associated with, with schizophrenia. And in fact, previously it had been thought of as just a neuronal gene. Now we, what we realize is it's largely 
a glial gene, and, and, and it's the glial cell that's providing the erection to the synapse. In any event, uh, th- these are all downregulated, and we think they're downregulated secondary to the failure of glial differentiation. One way to test that is to, is to see, well, if we take these, these cells, schizophrenic versus control, and we put them back into, into baby mice, and chimerize them. Do the uh, do the schizophrenia derived glial progenitors mature uh, less effectively in the chimeric brain? And so here we've we've done that experiment: control derived versus schizophrenia derived glial progenitors injected neonatally, uh, and these were injected into um, you know in, into uh, baby mice with with the purpose of looking at the rate of astrocytic differentiation, we already know that uh, doing the same thing, these these would be hypomyelinated. Now the question is what's happening to the astrocyte? Because the astrocyte and the oligodendrocyte, remember, are both coming from that glial progenitor. And and most of the glial differentiation genes that I showed you that were downregulated are upstream of that fate choice. Okay? So genes like like oleg one and oleg two are up upstream of the of the point where the cell the progenitor makes that fate choice between astrocyte or oligo. So if they're down, by the same token that we have hypomyelination and oligodendrocyte differentiation failure, we should have astrocyte differentiation failure, and that turned out to be the case. And so here we're looking at the, the production of in red gliofibrillaricidic protein astrocytes from the glial progenitor in the normal, versus in the schizophrenic the the. Engraftment is fine. Every little yellow dot there is a human cell, but there's only a handful of cells that have started to really make uh, astrocytes yet by this point. So that has real implications because normally in development, the synapses are forming exodendritic contacts are occurring within essentially a network of, of, of astrocytic fibers. Astrocytes are there first uh, as, as synapses are, are forming. Of course, neurons are out first in, in ontogeny, but uh, as fibers start to be elaborated by, by neurons, that's when glia are coming into the fray in terms of their, their own migration and differentiation. By the time synapses are forming, typically they're forming within astrocytic domains. The implication here would be that, well, in early development, when this is happening, uh, the astrocytes uh, you know, re- really aren't on the scene yet. The, the, the progenitors are, but they haven't uh, matured as astrocytes yet. The implication would be that, uh, th- therefore, exodendritic contacts are forming more or less on their own and organizing on their own in early development. They, these cells do ultimately become astrocytes, but even when they do, even though, you know, they're delayed, but they ultimately do catch up and become astrocytes, but then they're really abnormal astrocytes. And so here we've mapped a number uh, at, at a more mature stage, controls versus schizophrenia-derived. These are in the chimeric brains. And you know, this is the normal radial structure okay, of, of, of astrocytes. You know, they, they really do look like little stars with, with essentially a radial array of, of fibers. Then you look at the schizophrenics, and th- these have a much more fibrous appearance Many, and this is the important point, many regions within their domains don't have fibers. They have larger gaps in between fibers, and then some of their fibers are basically sticking together and, uh, and, and not recognizing that they are um, uh, you know, essentially sister fibers. And so if, if one takes any one of these cells and then rotates it uh, on, on one axis, uh, there, there's very little open space um, that, that occurs as, as one rotates. If, if you do the same thing with any of these, you actually have large gaps that, that really appear uh, with, with, uh, with cellular rotation. That's called Fanon analysis when you quantify that. And, and quantitatively, the, these cells uh, had markedly more what we call empty wedges, meaning open uh, regions with, within their volume, which means that in the adult, there are regions of, uh, of essentially neuropil that are not being covered by astrocytic fibers, the astrocytic fibers 
fibers are not controlling those synapses. One would anticipate that that may have functional implications, so we looked at the behavior of the animals. And uh, they, in fact, have a significant behavioral phenotype. The, the schizophrenia chimeras are uh, extremely anxious. Uh, this is an open, um, a, um, uh, in the open arms here in this elevated uh, plus maze test uh, is where animals will typically go. The nor- normals will spend a lot of time in the open arms just, just you know, engaging their environment. They're curious. When animals are anxious, they go into the closed arms and hide, basically. It's a standard test of, of anxiety in, uh, in in mice and rats. And you can see the, the schizophrenic chimeras spend uh, most of their time uh, really avoiding the open arms. They spend very little time in the open arms. In fact, some of them just refuse to go in at, at all. Uh, they're also relatively antisocial. Uh, they they t- tend to avoid other mice instead of being uh, curious by them in the three chambers challenge and, and then if they're in an open uh, field uh, uh, chamber they, they tend to run away uh, they spend uh, t- time more time escaping um, uh, stranger mice and so that, that, that's just by way of example and in this particular case all these dots are individual mice but uh, all the cells are from one patient and so then so it's one patient versus his control, and of course we've done that on a broad number now of, of uh, patient-derived lines, and therefore lots and lots of mice that are individually generated from from individual patients. But here, what we've done is is pool the data across patients, and so it gives you more of an idea of how this plays out, uh, accounting for patient variability. And what, what's remarkable is that the uh, the anxiety and antisocial aspects of things, the the uh, socialization testing and the anxiety testing, is very consistent. Every single schizophrenic patient-derived um, animal we've looked at has been uh, uh, deficient relative to its its match control. Okay, and talking about the patients uh, uh, now, the the, the uh, schizophrenic patients across the board, the mice generated from them show show behavioral phenotype that's, that's actually quite constant. Um, and, and then there's more variability in some of the straight cognitive testing, like novel object recognition, Barnes maze testing. But the bottom line is that, that these these animals, uh, even for those tests, even where there is more variability from patient to patient, we, we still see when we look at the overall groups a significant behavioral phenotype. So, you know, it's not to anthropomorphize it uh, too much. Uh, you, you can't look at a mouse and say that it has specific features that are, that are schizophrenic, but, but clearly they have abnormal behavior by, vir- by virtue of these glial abnormalities. And so then we ask the, the broader question, is the hypomyelination of schizophrenia, is that, is that more typical of neurodegenerative disorders? Schizophrenia is, if nothing else, a neurodegenerative disorder. Over time, patients become more and more hypomyelinated. They start to develop cortical atrophy as, as they become more and more ill. Um, and so we, we've looked at a couple of other diseases. I'm only going to show you one, which, which is a Huntington's disease. And so Huntington's, uh, for those of you not, not familiar with it, uh, you know, it's the result of a polyglutamine expansion in, in the uh, Huntington gene. And uh, you know it's a, it's a it's a monogenic uh, abnormality, but but uh, for for many years people thought it was going to be a simple disease to take care of because it was monogenic. Well, it turns out that one gene, when it goes bad, uh, j- just screws up a, a, a wide wide ver- uh, variety of cellular processes, both in terms of the RNA uh, being uh, the transcripts essentially being toxic, but also the protein itself uh, uh, binding non-specifically both cytoplasmically and, and in the nucleus. And so, uh, basically wiping out whole uh, networks both at the at the uh, transcriptome and proteome 
level. And so it's, it's a very complex pathology. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, that patients with Huntington disease become hypomyelinated. And, in fact, the uh, track hd study, which, which was a study that came out a couple of years back where patients were at risk were followed prospectively for a number of years, uh, as in schizophrenia, actually. The, the patients become hypomyelinated long before they're clinically symptomatic. Um, so we went ahead and then set up chimeras with Huntington gliopogenitors. And so these were gliopogenitors derived from embryonic stem cells that were either had the Huntington mutation or not. These are all sibling cells. And so these are typically from IVF couples where um, uh, folks at risk for Huntington's would uh, undergo IVF. And, of course, the ES and, and then blastocysts that were developed um, but by virtue of IVF, th- those that had the Huntington mutation, of course, are ditched. Uh, but many of these couples were willing to uh, donate uh, normal um, uh, normal embryos as well. And so that gave us a set of sibling pairs of normal glioprog- of normal ES and Huntington ES, and then the gliopogenitors derived from them as siblings. It's, it's the next best thing to isogenics when you get down to it. And then we established the gliochimeras with those. And we found that they, in fact, were hypomyelinated, that there was a, a significant myelin phenotype. And I'm skipping over all that to, to get to then what we did with that information. We then went ahead and and uh, did the same type of RNA analysis looking at the differential gene expression by the Huntington versus normal gliopogenitors and found a, a set of genes that was downregulated. We, we looked at three, th- three Huntington patients versus controls. And when we look at the, the gene ontology, you know, basically the... Um, and when you look at uh, gene set uh, enrichment analysis of, of these data, it, it's quite remarkable in that top of the list, synaptic transmission, neurotransmission, and then the most of the other categories fall into the, the, the uh, essentially the, the rubric of differentiation failure or failure of neuroglial maturation. But, you know, it's a similar set of gene ontologies that we saw with schizophrenia. So then when we looked at the genes, what became remarkable is actually it's a very, very similar set of genes that, that uh, are shared by the gliopogenitor that are deficient in Huntington's and those that were deficient in schizophrenia. Uh, so, so, again, a who's who of genes involved in glial differentiation and myelination are downregulated in Huntington's versus control lines. And, and one thing worth mentioning that we'll get back to, uh, as a consequence, we believe, of the differentiation failure in the glial progenitors in Huntington's, a, a large host of potassium channel genes are downregulated, and, and that's something that becomes very important uh, um, functionally. Uh, one, one thing that happens in Huntington's, you know, Huntington's uh, patients tend to be, uh, the, the, their neurons are hyper-excitable, and if anyone is familiar with, with seeing Huntington's patients, they're they are, uh, hyper-excitable uh, by virtue of neurologic phenotype as well. Uh, many will go ahead to have uh, seizure disorders, but, but uh, more, more typically, of course, the, the choreiform abnormalities represent extreme hyper-excitability with, within the motor networks. So in any event, um, uh, potassium, one of its major functions, in, in, uh, at least in regulating the resting membrane potential uh, of, uh, of, of, in this case, glia, is, is to uh, permit um, uh, efficient potassium uptake by glia from the synapse. And when potassium channels, and especially a number of these are inwardly rectifying channels that allow potassium to get in, in other words, allow it to be taken up by glia from the synaptic cleft, if those are defective, if they're downregulated, then interstitial potassium levels are high and neurons are then hyperexcitable. And so it's really remarkable that most, literally most of the potassium channels made by humans are downregulated in, in these glia. And it turns out it's a common upstream regulator, as you might expect. So in any event, we, we then went ahead and set up the 
the uh, it's chimeras, and um, uh, we, we uh, working on the. Um, the same type of logic that we did with the schizophrenics, that uh, if if these cells are deficient at the RNA level in terms of glial differentiation-associated genes, we're going to see a failure in glial differentiation, and when we do. So, so when we look at the, in, in this case, at myelin production, we see in the normal, normal myelin production by, by three months. When we look at the Huntington-derived chimeras, we just don't see any myelin production. So th- that's why they're hypermyelinated, but at the same time, there's a real astrocytic defect as well. They're, they're not undergoing astrocyte differentiation as rapidly as the normal. And it turns out that structurally it's a very similar story as with schizophrenia where, where we have normal structures in the controls, but in the, in the mutant Huntington expressing uh, astrocytes, as they mature, these large gaps, large regions that, that are not being covered by glial fiber. So it's, there's a common theme that, that's arising here. There's a final common pathway of glial differentiation defects that, that is affecting the, the, essentially the astrocytic development of these brains and therefore the neural network formation within it. So we wanted to look a little bit at the mechanism of that and then broke down the RNA data a little bit further. So when, when you see these, these glial fibers that are stick, sticking together in some regions that are not covered it brings to mind some of the um, uh, transgenics that have been uh, described in um, uh, with knockouts of the different proto-cadherin genes. The proto-cadherins are a large set of genes. There are four major classes. They break up into over 40 individual genes. But what they do is, is uh, essentially establish combinatorial codes by, by which uh, fi- neuronal fibers either stick together or not, uh, self-recognize or not, it- adhere with uh, homotypically with, with, with partner cells or not. Uh, they've never really been looked at in glia. Well, we looked at it here thinking that, gee whiz, this kind of images we were looking at in, in these, uh, these tracings I just showed you are very similar to, to the kinds of tracings that have been shown in, in disrupted dendritic arborizations in protocadherin uh, knockouts. And so we thought, well, maybe these are really important in glial cells as well. So it turned out that they are. There's a sharp down regulation of quite a number of the protocadherins in, in both Huntington's and schizophrenia-derived glial progenitors and astrocytes. And here I'm just showing one example where we've taken uh, Huntington's and schizophrenia, and we've looked in each case at those proto-cadherins that are, that are down-regulated in the glial progenitor. And the remarkable thing is this is a large f- family of genes, and yet it's the same set of genes, uh, proto-cadherin 11X, 15, 7, that, that, that's down 17 in, uh, in schizophrenia and, and Huntington's. And so th- th- that uh, struck us as really interesting, because here you've got this, this set of genes that's involved in essentially establishing self-recognition, or as the case may be, uh, uh, you know, self-fiber self repulsion, uh, that, that is not only down in both the schizophrenia and Huntington's-derived glial progenitors and astrocytes, but it's the same partners, it's, it's the same individual moieties that, that are down in these very, very, very different d- diseases, but they are down uh, in the respect of being downstream to the glial differentiation-associated transcripts that are also common to the two diseases. So we took that one step further and then, then looked at you know, promoter analysis. In this case, we're showing Huntington's data, but we, we uh, used TransFact to then go back upstream to see, okay, what regulatory elements are common to these proto-cadherins, to, the, the, to those proto-cadherins that are down in both Huntington's and schizophrenia, to try to really come up with you know, essentially uh, more, more larger commonalities and found that uh, there were a couple there are a number of of, um, uh, of of transcription factors that are 
uh, hitting all these different proto-cadherins that, that are down where the transcription factors themselves are selectively down in Huntington's and schizophrenia. And the ones that, that really look to be the most prominent and, and shared across both diseases, um, NKX22 and DMRT2. And so NKX22 has really become a significant target for us because now we see that uh, it's, its downregulation is responsible for an awful lot of what we're seeing in these so I'm going to close with just a, this, a couple of slides here to, to kind of take the logic one step further. If, if we've got these cells that are deficient, um, they're deficient in a number of functional respects, their ability to form proper fiber arrays, to organize synapses, uh, to take up potassium, uh, and, and they're deficient because of upstream defects that are fairly broad, um, What's the easiest thing to do? Can, can we uh, really hope to go after all these different processes with individual agents um, for, for therapeutic, uh, um, you know, for treatment, for, for therapeutic benefit? Uh, or might it be simpler to just replace the cells outright? And so we took that, that tack. And the same kind of logic we used in terms of remyelinating the shiver brain a while back, well, now we're thinking about that from the standpoint of replacing astrocytes using the gliopogenitor. And so uh, we started to, that work with Huntington's and specifically asked whether uh, we could take a Huntington's um, mouse, the R62 mouse, which is a really significant uh, disease phenotype. These animals usually die by 16 weeks, and, and they're quite sick. And we wanted to see whether we could uh, achieve any improvement in their motor phenotype by injecting human glial progenitors into the striatum, recognizing that those cells recognizing or hoping that those cells would replace the mouse population, and could we then get therapeutic benefit by simply replacing that glial population outright. And so we did it initially in the, in the striatum alone, and we're really focused on looking at, at, the, uh, at the motor endpoints. And here we're just looking at one of these chimeric striata. All the red dots are human, the mouse, uh, of, of course, uh, in blue. Gives you an idea of just how extensively chimerized. And this is a dot map giving you an idea of the distribution of these cells. In this case, we, we've sorted the cells on CD44, which, which is a more astrocyte-biased. It's the hyaluronin receptor. It's more, more astrocyte-biased from this population, a little downstream of that, of that CD140 phenotype. And so we convert one into the other in vitro using bone morphogenetic proteins. Uh, BMP4 in particular drives glial differentiation from the progenitor. That's what we then transplant into these R62s. And then uh, we see about a month uh, um, a delay in disease progression on the motor side, which, which essentially confirmed our hypothesis. We're happy to see that. The surprise was that even though we only went into the striatum, even then we still got a couple week increase in survival. And so it was really quite effective. And there was a, a partial and incomplete, but actually pretty, pretty significant um, rest, restoration of striatal volume. Normally the uh, striatum, the quadriputamen in the mouse, uh, becomes quite, uh, quite small, involuted in, um, in, in Huntington's just as it does in patients. And here is a roughly 50% uh, rescue of the degree of striatal rev uh, involution. And so th that, that suggested that, uh, gee whiz, these glio, you know, that it works, that you can actually get glial replacement with a the therapeutic benefit. And then we went ahead and did um, this study. This was actually a, a, a study done by a CRO uh, because one of the um, funding agencies we were working with wanted to actually see this uh, in a blinded fashion because this was the strongest survival effect that had ever been noticed in this very severe Huntington line. Um, 
And so this is a behavioral t- testing by Psychogenics. It's, it's a company that uh, does uh, essentially uh, blinded uh, behavioral analysis uh, as, as, as part of FDA submissions and the like. Uh, it, it's done as a CRO for independent analysis. And so the, these were uh, uh, animals that we sent them, all, uh, all um, coded, so it was done blindly. And the animals were tested either for cognitive testing or in uh, neurologic uh, uh, motor function testing. They call them respectively smart cube and neurocube. But in any event, uh, every animal is a dot. And these, this is essentially set up as a principal component analysis. And what we're looking at is, is either the f- f- uh, first or second standard deviation from the mean. And that's the that's the, these concentric circles. That's what they represent. And what you see here is a significant separation of the glial progenitor transplanted animals from the uh, from the untransplanted R six twos from the un, untreated animals. That's not completely. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no by no means a complete restoration here, but. Basically, there's a significant improvement in both cases. And this is just with straight replacement alone, not with, with, whole, uh, with whole brain, whole neuraxis replacement, which is what we're doing now. The mechanism for this seems to be a restoration of potassium homeostasis by these cells. And so what we notice is that the animals stopped seizing, and they, uh, they became much less uh, hyperactive, jittery, seizing, et cetera. And so at the, at the neuronal level, actually, we noticed that uh, the uh, inward rectification improved significantly and that uh, the, the um, uh, individual neurons, all this being done in slice preps, that there was much less of a... Um, uh, voltage change in response to single current injections, and so basically it's it's, it's restoring potassium homeostasis. Here, uh, Mikan's group then measured using potassium microelectrodes the steroidal potassium level in the transplant versus the untransplanted animals. A huge difference, and basically the transplanted animals, their potassium homeostasis is restored to normal. It's it's, uh, it's no different uh, the interstitial potassium levels from normal wild types, and so. And, and this, you know, we're talking maybe oh, 0.6 uh, millimolar or so of potassium, but that, that translates to 7 or 8 millivolts, and, you know, if you just plug it into the Nernst equation. And so basically these neurons are much less uh, hyper-excitable now, and, and that, that's contributing significantly to the restoration of phenotype. We suspect that this is going to be very similar to what we may see in, in schizophrenia as well. And so this gets to the point of essentially swapping out the cells in order to to restore significant uh, um, aspects of physiologic function. And, you know, if, if it really is that, um, that straightforward in terms of replacing the cells as opposed to, to treating all of the individual abnormalities that accrue from, 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 the, uh, uh, from the disease cells, then we can think in terms of replacing... Uh, astrocytes and gliopogenitors in much the same way as as, uh, as oligodendrocytes. And that led to the uh, design of this clinical trial, uh, which is um, the pre-angies before the, uh, before the FDA now, but it's, it's a very similar logic to, to what we're doing with progressive MS in terms of g- giving gliopogenitors in an allogeneic fashion f- for the purpose of re- replacing the endogenous progenitor pool. Uh, in in MS, we're doing that for those in order for those progenitors to go to hypermyelinated or demyelinated regions to become new myelin. In the neurodegenerative diseases, the case the point is for those cells to replace disease cells, uh, and that's going to be a question of the relative competition between diseased and healthy cells. But to have those cells then the disease cells, the host cells, replaced by the, uh, the by the transplanted do- uh, donor cells for the purpose of astrocytic. Um, uh, replacement and and uh, recolonization. And so, 
and here's the basic strategy again. With whatever the source, we take glial progenitors, um, sort them using different markers. And I didn't go into this in great detail, but we have different marker sets for, for pulling out cells at different stages of either migration competence or replication competence, expansion competence, uh, or, or for, for that matter, even uh, migration preference. But depending upon what cell type we then take, we can go into either, uh, we hope, pediatric or adult targets. Over the years, every time I have to review this, uh, basically we're adding disease targets because the, the scope of gliopathology has become more and more apparent. Um, and so to these classic uh, myelin disorders, now we ha- can add not only Huntington's disease, um, where replacement, you know, at least at, at a common sense level, may perhaps makes sense, but schizophrenia where it becomes much more provocative, and yet uh, by all, everything we've done in the lab now suggests it should be possible in terms of replacing cell populations in the psychiatric disorders. And and also work I didn't talk about at all, we've been doing over, just over the last year in front of temporal dementia, we, we see much, much the same in terms of the, the significant role for gliopathology. That has been reported in ALS, in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, front of temporal dementia, is essentially um, the, the cousin of ALS. There are many, uh, um, many disorders where it can be the same gene, and in some cases FTD is, presents, in some cases ALS, in some cases both. But in any event, uh, this also looks to be a disease complex that is largely glial in terms of its origin. And uh, I'll, I'll close with that. Uh, this is obviously Copenhagen and not, uh, not Rochester. Um, and the, the, the lab is now really divided between the two sites, uh, both in Rochester here and Co- Copenhagen here. Um, there are lo- lots of folks in, in Mike and Niedergaard's lab we've worked with over the years as well, lot, lots of you know, collaborators uh, across the board in the various studies we're doing, but, but then also a number of clinical consortia we've set up for, uh, for, for the translational efforts that, that I've described. And I'll close with that. Thanks so much. Your background is always in a uh, always in a immunodeficient animal, and I think you use the rag to no cults most of the time. And uh, my question is is true from the animal experiments: Have you ever tried some transient immunosuppression or other types of no cults? And, and and how that will affect into the patients? Do the patients need to be uh, under some kind of immunosuppression? Yeah. So when we first started doing this, we did an immunocompetence. And so just for those of you interested in the animal modeling side of things, uh, you can do this in immunocompetence if if they're injected uh, very early, meaning just on the first day after birth. Uh, There's a a discrete window of perinatal tolerization to self that that occurs across mammals. Uh, In mice, it's very short. You only have about a day. And then after that, um, uh, transplanted. Um, especially xenogenetic cells will, will start to be uh, represented as, or, or recognized, I should say, as, as non-self. But at least if you get cells in in that first day, um, and if it's not, if, and if the numbers of cells are not too great, because large numbers of cells, then it's kind of a bit of a bell curve in terms of differentiation rate. And you end up with some cells differentiating uh, late enough to present late antigens after the period of tolerization has, has ended. But if it's if you use low doses and do it on the on the day of birth, you can get away without having to go into an immunodeficient model. Uh, it was when we started to do the survival trials that we realized we didn't want rejection as an issue whatsoever, and we were doing lots of animals. We couldn't guarantee that they were all going to be injected on day one or day two, and so so we crossed uh, uh, Shiver and some of our other lines, in fact, many of our other lines, to, uh, uh, to immunodeficient uh, backgrounds. Uh, 
to the to to your question um Will patients have to be immunosuppressed? Uh, the answer is yes. So, so for anything allogeneic, uh, yes, we're going to have to immunosuppress patients. Um, and, and that's, you know, there, there are very standard uh, transplant regimens out there now for, um, uh, that have been out for two decades for, you know, for s- systemic organs. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asked that question often, but, but the bottom line is it's not as bad as it sounds to, to have to immunosuppress people, um, at least with the, with, the, with the current generation of agents. Um, so our protocol includes uh, tacrolimus and mycophenolate and a p- period of uh, just steroid and anti-CD20 coverage at, at, at just around a couple weeks of graft. But then with six months of uh, tacrolimus and then stopping that and going on to mycophenolate, now, that's, a, that's a protocol that's, that's, that's been looked at in a number of, uh, of uh, settings now, which is quite effective uh, systemically. Um, there's very little experience in the brain with, with any of this. Uh, one thing that um, you know is, is out there, um, kind of competing issues, the, the, the old sense that uh, there was some immune privilege in the brain that uh, I think has largely been rejected over the years. Um, the brain's not all that immune privileged because the brain's always sus- subject to uh, incidents that can result in blood-brain barrier opening, edema, et cetera, where, where now you can have antigen exposure across to, to the systemic circulation. But that being said, um, uh, there's data out of the fetal uh, Parkinson's transplants, the fetal uh, midbrain transplants for Parkinson's that were done years back, that argued uh, with very, very long-term survival, you know, 13, 14, 15 years out with patients uh, who were then autopsied uh, when, when they died of other causes, and their graphs examined and found to have perfectly viable, uh, still, uh, still viable graphs. And those cases had been immunosuppressed for six months, and, and then immunosuppression had been stopped. And, and it looked like that's a, uh, that's a workable protocol. Uh, there was a parallel trial that w- had gone on at that time where patients were not immunosuppressed at all. Every single one of them rejected. So there is a period of, uh, of, of, of um, immune suppression that's required. What's not clear is that uh, one, if one stops immunosuppression totally and then proceeds, uh, if a person has... You know, it, it could be something trivial. It, it can be, uh, it can be a you know a flu or an adenovirus. Uh, you know, every time we get um, a headache, if you have the flu, you actually have a mild encephalitis. Well, you've got blood-brain barrier opening up, and you know, is that enough to to allow presentation of antigen that will then then result in rejection? Nobody really knows, and so we don't want to take that chance. So in our trial designs, we, we have patients going on to mycophenolate, which is a relatively benign uh, immunosuppressant for for long for, for long uh, period of time. Um, I have a question about neurodegenerative diseases that involve gliosis. In particular, in spongiform encephalopathy, um, prion disease or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, um, gliosis is a hallmark and one of the ways to figure out, you know, does this person have CJD? And in a mouse model of, uh, of prion disease, a collaborator of mine has a PRP mutation where the spongiform encephalopathy happens spontaneously. When we looked at RNA-seq data from hypothalamus from these mice, um, demyelination, myelination was the process that popped up once you set aside the inflammation. And there's also peripheral demyelination um, in humans that have the disease. So I'm wondering, have you thought about modeling and or therapy in diseases such as this, where gliosis and the demyelination are hallmarks. Yeah, so a so, um, couple of points there. 
Gliosis is is a hallmark of all sorts of diseases of the nervous system. You know, anything where you have a secondary uh, anything that with a significant inflammatory uh, um, uh, stimulus in the brain, you're going to get uh, gliosis. It's a question really of whether the whether the gliosis is part of the underlying pathology as opposed to a secondary response. In in the case of um, of CJD. Um, you know, we're very much interested in that because uh, one of the aspects, of course, of CJD is that depending upon the, the prion mutation, uh, you either get a transmission or not. And uh, and some of that is, uh, well, a lot of it is species-specific, right? You know, that's why the different prionopathies uh, have such uh, tight uh, species uh, specificities. Um, so the jury's out on that one. Uh, actually, I've, uh, we're working with uh, Stan Prusner's lab uh, to, to, to model exactly this. We, we've, they've set up the chimeras and uh, and have, have done the um, uh, you know the prion exposures there in San Francisco. And, and actually, they're they're set up. We're just waiting for the results at this point to see whether or not uh, this provides a, a useful model of uh, of, of CJD or the prionopathies more generally. And, and in, a, in a disease that, uh, frankly, I'm more interested in for, from from that standpoint, um, the multisystem atrophies. And so multisystem atrophy is very much a d- disease of, of glia as well. It's, it's uh, you know, this, this is a, we, we used to think of this as, you know, Parkinson's variant or, um, uh, or, or in some cases, uh, uh, variants of, 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 of uh, frontotemporal dementias. Uh, but it's turned out it's, it's a discrete set of d- disorders that um, uh, in which glia, primarily oligodendrocytes, but, but also gliopogenitors are, are hit um, with uh, with a pro- you know it's essentially it's a proteinopathy, but it, but it's hit, hitting the glia specifically, and so there's a, a massive glial response. Uh, that that is on the order of what you'll see in CJD, but but uh, where the the glial cell is the essentially the the transmitting um, cellular phenotype, and th- that is something also we're we're modeling now in the lab using the uh, use, using the chimeras. I have two quick questions. Um, did you observe any cell deaths uh, comparing patients with controls after transplantation? And uh, did you um, uh, investigate any local inflammation from uh, uh, microglia uh, um, locomotion or, infam- or uh, 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 around the area of the transplantation? Uh, and if it's different from patients and controls? So, again, this is an immunodeficient background, so um, for most of what I've shown you. Um, In some cases, we've seen minor microglial responses. You know, the microglia are still there. These are RAG1, RAG2, uh, um, but uh, nothing that's ever affected uh, survival or viability that that we've been able to tell. So so, uh, we've we've not seen any significant uh, cell death. Um, We we do see uh, significant differences in terms of rates of expansion depending upon, of course, donor and host both, but not not death per se. Okay. Uh, I have a question about the migration and integration of the glial progenitor cells, and I wonder if you have any evidence that they tend to target pathological zones, like, say, in uh, MS, you have foci of demyelination, or in Huntington's, or do they tend to more randomly integrate and replace uh, existing glial cell? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, we've looked at it extensively because, you know, to some extent, uh, 
on a common sense level, we, we really thought we were going to see some sort of homing to uh, disease sites, and, and we started doing that initially in, in the focal demyelinations, but you know, actually in later work uh, looked at uh, some of the degenerative um, uh, disease transgenics as well. And, and the, you know, the bottom line is no, we see no homing. Uh, it's, it's entirely stochastic spread. Uh, it, it, which makes it a lot simpler to model, if nothing else. The, the, the cells are expanding, so, so there's constant division of the progenitor population. Um, there's contact-dependent uh, inhibition of, uh, of persistent replication. Once the cells, uh, you know, they're sending fibers out, and one of, the, one of the things that these fibers are really querying are the presence of next-door neighbor fibers. And so the cells actually uh, start to achieve. You can you can just imagine a uh, you know a balloon blowing up. Um, in, internally, the, the, as the the cells that are the most dense, uh, as they start to essentially recognize one another, they stop dividing. The cells at the margins keep on going, and it's uh, and there's a an advancing wave of cells that uh, are migrating and uh, basically migrating rapidly enough that they're not recognizing one another, as, start, as soon as they become dense enough in a given region, the migration starts to slow, fibers start to recognize one another, they stop dividing, they, they, and they stop migrating. And so it's... Um, uh, it, you know, it's, from that standpoint, it's stochastic, but it's uniform, it's expansile, and it's predictable. Um, we, we've even put cells right next to lesions, and, and it doesn't matter. So there's no homing per se. Uh, now, remember, this is, this is a, these are populations of cells that we're, we're not exposing to any uh, cytokine environment, et cetera, prior to transplant. Um, you know, the cells can be modified in ways that will allow specific cytokine recognition and allow following de developmental gradients, and, and folks have played with those types of methods. But, but from everything I'm talking about here, where we're just transplanting native glial progenitors or ES-derived that, that are not otherwise manipulated, no, there, there's no, no, no homing that we've seen. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.